Welcome to Zero Downtime, the new podcast brought to you by DCD's editorial team in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical infrastructure provider. Vertiv has kept the world's leading businesses connected for more than 50 years. We build, deliver, and support critical infrastructure that's available, sustainable, and future-ready. Visit us at vertiv.com and see what we can do for you. This week on uh, DCD's Zero Downtime podcast, I'm talking to David Mitten about green software. And um, I think the first thing to say is green, the, the, the there's been a huge amount of effort into making uh, data centers more sustainable, but it seems to have kind of overlooked the software till very recently. Is there any particular reasons for that? That is an interesting question. I suppose going back to fundamentals, software doesn't emit any carbon by itself. It's not like it's combusting or uh, generating anything physical. And so the question is, what is the impact of what the software is running on? And that's the infrastructure. And I suppose the first step is to try and improve how the infrastructure is behaving in terms of electricity and the energy that's going into the data center. Whereas there's been less focus on the characteristics and behavior of the software itself mm. yes i mean actually they it, it, even get into the processes or the it at all has been almost out of bounds um that the whole effort seems to have been to make sure that we're looking at um pue which just says uh once the electricity has got to the into the rack then it's good electricity and we don't need to worry about what it's doing they've spent a lot of time uh keeping it onto the the easier part of the issue without actually dealing with the software. Right. And I suppose that goes back to almost organizational design because IT and software engineering are quite different disciplines and departments even from facilities management. And in, at least in t- traditional enterprise data centers, the, the building itself and the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure is managed by a completely different team compared to who's doing the actual provisioning of, um, of the software, who's writing the software, where it's going and how it's running. And only recently, I suppose, with the big tech companies, that's a little different where they own their own data centers. And so um, they're deploying their own software into their own data centers. But um, until recently, the standard pattern was that you would buy physical hardware, you would rent co-location space, you'd put that hardware in there, and then you're hand that out, you'd hand that over to a separate team who would then deploy the software. And now, and I say recently, like in the last 15 years or so, as, as cloud has become more popular and the idea of DevOps has, has come into play and developers are considered to be much more responsible for the infrastructure where their code is running, then that has those lines have started to blur. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Um... What's the potential with green software? You've got a data center that's um, running with the absolute minimum PUE. There's nothing else you can do to make the um, uh, energy supply and the cooling more efficient. I mean, is there a sort of a, 
um, some magic you can apply, which will take the software and uh, reduce the number of cycles by half and therefore reduce the amount of energy you use? Or is it, I rather suspect, a little bit more complicated than that? Yeah, so it's always more complicated than that, right? For any any question you can ask in any discipline anywhere in the world, is it's always a lot more. Uh, <laughs> There's more always a simple answer, <laughs> but the simple answer <laughs> right. is wrong. <laughs> yes. Right, and we'll leave the simple answers to politicians. the mm-hmm. The real answers really comes down to what you are trying to improve. So the classic physics. Um, definition when you're looking at energy is power multiplied by time and you can reduce the power i suppose which is what we're talking about or improve the characteristics of power and um, such as by um, making it generated by clean energy um, and then that reduces one part of your equation and then the time aspect the time variable um, is often what software engineers and programmers will think about as well if i reduce the time Basically, if I make my code faster, then the amount of energy consumed will be reduced. And that assumes that those are the only two factors at play, which doesn't always turn out to be the case um, and can be a bit more complicated. So to give two examples, um, the amount of memory that is consumed is a separate resource the amount of cpu that is consumed and optimizing those two can be difficult and you get different trade-offs between them Um, and then a second example is well you could reduce the time by running the code across 10,000 different systems 10,000 different servers um, but you may have increased the um the power and that um, in that scenario and so it becomes a little more complicated and you need to figure out what you're trying to optimize for Yes, I mean, the time uh, that software designers um, and developers are really aiming to reduce is the response time for the user. So you can actually, they get a response to their click before they get bored, classically. That's right. Yeah. Um, And in doing that, you can increase the amount of energy because you could deploy your code very close to your user on a less efficient Um, set of equipment um, versus putting it in the middle of nowhere on the very highest efficiency equipment in the highest efficiency data center. Um, But um, the amount of um, power that is required will be reduced, but you can still increase the time. Um, And so figuring out these trade-offs, if you're increasing CPU um, processing um, because you've got a faster processor, um, that can reduce the time. Um, And the same thing with memory. Memory has an energy um, cost as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, yeah, the, the, the number of potential extra complications just gets more and more when you start to think putting in extra mem- memory that will involve um, extra hardware, embodied energy, etc, etc. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, there, are there people who are um, sensibly looking at uh, software efficiency and green software um, who are looking at it sensibly? Are they looking at it in isolation? Is that worth doing? Who are they? What's going on with green software at the moment? Right. So there's an interesting question about the timeline on this because you could say that um, focusing on the efficiency of software has been going on since the invention of mobile phones where batteries 
or even laptops, um, battery power um, and how long you've got left until you need to charge your equipment has always been a factor in mobile devices. And uh, the mobile manufacturers, Apple in particular, but also but all of them really, um, one of the things that they are focused on in every generation of every time they release a new iPhone um, or Samsung releases a new phone is how long do you get until you have to charge your battery on on standard workloads like uh, watching a video that's a classic benchmark that they use uh, watching a video on wi-fi versus 4g or 5g um, and also browsing how how long can you do that and so understanding at a system level the efficiency of the equipment and and having those play together so you have more efficient allocation of tasks across CPU through to having different types of CPU cores that are uh, clocked differently and are optimized for different types of tasks. And that's what we've seen from ARM-based processors compared to Intel-based processors where the ARM chips are significantly more energy efficient. Mm. Yeah, that's a good example where um, you've got uh, a metric that's kind of um, set in stone. You want longest battery battery life possible, and against that metric, the might the, the sort of the marketing might of uh, Intel is completely powerless. People will use ARM based Qualcomm processors simply because they do. Uh, that they they give a better battery life. So yeah, when, when there's a metric that's that's there, and and so um, it, then then people will work to it. Though not necessarily that metric isn't always going to be the metric that um, actually makes for the most efficient uh, thing overall. Because I suppose a lot of um, sort of mobile applications also increase battery life by hiving off work to data centers instead of to the um, to the device. Right, and this is a, it's almost a philosophical difference between Android and iOS in that Android typically wants to do more in the cloud and it offloads a lot of things into the cloud, uh, whereas you see iOS devices are doing more and more on device. And I think that's partly to do with how Google and Apple think about their infrastructure and where their core competencies lie. There's definitely a privacy element behind that but you're right i think there's it makes uh, the architecture of applications much more interesting and you've got these different layers of where you're going to be executing code when we think about cloud computing um, in particular you've got centralized cloud regions where you might run your database but then there are different types of applications you might push out to the cdn where you're just hosting static assets. Sometimes you'll have something in the middle with serverless workers that are running uh, in different edge data centers. And then you've got the actual device itself, which is running the client side of things. And perhaps more in the future, people like to talk about, well, what's going to run at the cell tower or what's going to run on your router in your house? I think we're probably not there yet. Um, But those are the different, we're starting to add these different layers. It's no longer just client server. There are things in between and at different layers. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think we're starting to see some sort of um, regulators looking into it. I think the, you know, there's a French industry regulator that's asking questions about how much energy do routers use and that, that sort of thing. Is it too much of a jump to ask about the Green Software Foundation? 
I mean, because I, I, I like a good foundation and I, I always think, um, you know, there's got to be people out there who have expertise who are, are going to be the right people to ask about this kind of thing. And that's that, I know little more about it than the name, I have to say. Right. So that's, I suppose, the answer to your earlier question about who's doing interesting things on this. And the Green Software Foundation is certainly it's a relatively new organization. It, is primarily out of Microsoft and a couple of other industry organizations and ThoughtWorks are, enabled, are um, involved as well. And there are some academic institutions who are also behind it. And they've got a number of different projects going on. I think one of the big challenges just in general is access to data. And it's only very recently that all three of the big cloud providers have started allowing customers to get carbon intensity information from the workloads that they're running but to be able to calculate things like how much energy is a particular piece of software responsible for the consumption of or what how does that translate into carbon emissions um, the data just hasn't been available and generally still isn't available for the most part and so this is a, a particular challenge and the green software foundation has a working group that is looking into access to data and making that open source and they also have a separate working group which is working on a metric called the software carbon intensity and this is then intended to use some of that data um, to be able to calculate um, the rate of carbon emissions per unit of work. And they provide a, a relatively simple equation, which looks at things like the energy consumed by the software, um, the embodied emissions of that software, where that software is actually running, um, and then what is the functional unit. And that can be something like uh, a user or an API call or running a machine learning job or something like that. And then you can take all of these components and, and the idea is you get a score at the end, which allows you to understand the overall carbon intensity of your software. And I believe the goal of that is to be able to look at improvements over time so you can see how changes to your software architecture or the components reduce or potentially increase your score. And then I think the long-term goal is to be able to compare different pieces of software so you can make choices based on the carbon intensity. Well, okay. So if it's including even the embodied um, carbon in the hardware, um, that would be like um, your your AI processor takes a certain amount of carbon and water and energy, et cetera, to produce, and you're using it for um, this number of microseconds or seconds. So dividing the total footprint of that by the... T or I I dividing that into the, uh, the, the whole total footprint of it, the amount of time you're actually using it. That's right, yeah. So looking over the lifetime of the hardware and then allocating the particular slice of it to the time that your software is running um it's quite it's quite challenging i think and this is somewhat of an aspirational standard i would i would also highlight i'm not involved um in in developing it or anything like that. i'm just an observer an interested observer um but the challenge of all these things is the the data and the access to it and then being able to realistically allocate time on hardware and also just understanding what we're trying to improve because energy consumption in general is not necessarily bad it's 
what is the impact of the generation required to provide the energy. So if you're burning fossil fuels to generate the energy, then that causes problems because of the carbon emissions. But as we move to clean energy, then that becomes less of an issue. Um, so trying to understand what the real world environmental impact is, is, I think, the first step of any of these kind of things. And so the SCI includes carbon as a key part of the spec because the overall goal is to reach net zero carbon globally. So, I mean, are we talking about like some sort of software probe sitting alongside uh, the actual software that's kind of monitoring and informing you on how much um, energy it's responsible for. That's right. So the idea is that the energy component of the carbon intensity score is a measure of energy in kilowatt hours. And so you've got to be able to extract that from the machine or uh, the machines, whatever it is that's running on, um, whether it's a serverless function, you've got to be able to understand how much energy went into that execution uh, and the overall infrastructure that the software is mm -hmm. running on. Right. Okay. And I mean, yeah, so, so many assumptions and everything in there. You're assuming that the um, uh, this little probe has got an accurate story from your big cloud provider about where its energies come from and an also an accurate story about that, that company's plans for how it's going to dispose of the hardware it's running on after it's finished with it. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the can of worms gets more big and slippery and tangled if, the, the more you look at it. Um, right. But this is um, the... I would say this is the big challenge with it because the cloud providers, they're very very—they're doing a good job with their carbon calculators where you're only looking at carbon, which is something that companies have to report and you might want to talk about publicly, but you can't easily reverse that back into energy and they don't tell you what the, it doesn't explain in Amazon or Google's cloud carbon footprint calculators, they don't show the number of kilowatt hours that you consume during a month, for example. And even just collecting that is a challenge because there are some standard APIs. So Intel, for example, provides a RAPL tool, which allows you to inspect the Intel CPUs for their energy consumption. Um, it sounds easy. Uh, there are some challenges with the counters and how you get that information out of the CPU and keep track of it and all those kind of things. And also the classic issue of whether you're inspecting it actually has an impact on the energy consumption itself and what else the system is doing. But that only works on Intel CPUs, and it's different if you want to get it from AMD. And as far as I'm aware, ARM chips don't have anything available um, that is equivalent. And given that more systems are moving to ARM, certainly um, on mobile, some laptops, and in the data center as well, that's also a problem. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that issue about the, the the potential overhead of this might cancel out any benefits you get from using the monitor is always an issue, yeah. Right, and you have to account for that. And that's often done by having a just a, a vanilla install of an operating system and not having anything else, and then doing multiple runs at different points and averaging it or using the median value and all those kind of, kind of things you can do to smooth out some of those outliers but oftentimes the outliers are interesting if you get a very very high reading or a very low reading uh, just discarding it is not generally not a good idea because you want to understand well why is that one metric certainly so high because that might actually impact the real world production deployment of your software mm. 
Yeah. So I guess there's um, multiple ways in which this could be used. I mean, you could end up with a tool that's very good for um, using at the des- design and development stage and then sort of send the, send the software out into the world in the hope that it's going to behave itself nicely or the, the more challenging idea of some sort of real-time monitor and control of it. That's right. And the the SCI is really designed for a team to use it um, rather than making big comparisons, at, certainly at the moment, because one of the variable aspects of it is that the system boundary is defined by the person who's doing the measurement, which means that it's very difficult to compare between scores unless the system boundary is exactly the same. And this is a challenge that we see in the academic literature as well. In the, If you just look at the data center energy estimates, um, you'll see many, many different types of software system boundaries, whether it includes the networking, internal or external, uh, whether cryptocurrency mining is considered a data center or not. Those are all kind of major factors that impact what the total number is that you get out of it. And if you're comparing two different numbers, you can't compare them if the system boundaries are different. So when it comes to software, that could include things like, well, I've decided I'm going to include my build and test system as part of the boundary uh, of of the system that I'm going to measure. But another organization might say, well, actually, the test environment is excluded. And so they would get a lower and a better carbon intensity score than the other organization. But because those boundaries are different, you can't actually compare them. Right. Yes. And you can bet that if this found its way into some sort of customer-facing dashboard, uh, you'd get some really, really good metrics from it by the uh, providers excluding all the things they didn't want to exclude. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and sort of just the and the, the the politics of this, I can see, I can really see it working very well in the sort of developer environment, and that if. Um, if you've got a situation where developers are incentivized to reduce the uh, um, the emissions of their software. Um, and um, there's a sort of question in my mind that the cloud providers are very keen to keep telling us how running software in the cloud is much better than in an in-house data center. Um, and I could see that this kind of tool might generate data that was supportive of that. Yes, certainly. And the question comes down to incentives because they want you to use more resources because that's how they're billing you. But they want to make sure that the usage of those resources has a minimal or zero environmental impact, which is why they're putting all their efforts into trying to be carbon neutral and to get to net zero and to tell you all of the good things they're doing around buying renewable energy and all those kind of things, rather than necessarily focusing on how do you use fewer resources because um, those are things that they're charging you for. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. So um, there's a sort of potential sort of... Um political dimension to this in that um, if a large cloud provider like Microsoft or whoever is backing it, they will want to use the results. Um, they want results that help them, you know, in a, in a good way, help them improve their efficiency and in maybe not such a good way, help them show how good their efficiency is. Um, yeah, and, I think yeah. That, that could be a challenge. I think so far the Green Software Foundation has done a good job at being independent from 
the incentives of Microsoft as their cloud products or anything like that. Although a lot of Microsoft people are involved, and I'm assuming that Microsoft is funding them, the, the people who are involved do seem to be doing a good job at that. So I, I wouldn't um, necessarily take a cynical view of, of how that is impacting it. But ultimately, there's a reason why they're funding it, and there's always a business reason behind that. And we're seeing a lot of competition between the cloud providers now about who can be the greenest. And that comes down to things like the transparency and with the calculators, but also what those providers are actually doing to improve their footprint. Google's been leading on this for quite some time, um, but I think Microsoft is doing a very good job as well. Um, They're just looking at different things and they're on different timelines. Right. And Amazon may or may not be doing some kind of good work on this, but we know for sure that they won't tell anybody about it. (laughs) <laughs> yes, they've been the least transparent. And now they do have a calculator for the, the cloud carbon footprint. They're not as good, I would say, as uh, certainly Google and, and Microsoft. Um, that being um, overall transparent, talking about their, their overall um, carbon footprint, what they're doing in terms of purchasing renewable energy other than making generalized statements. Um, and I think there could be a lot more done than that mm-hmm. from Amazon. Okay, good. And kind of on a personal level, I mean, as a, um, you know, you're you're this combination of a sort of an academic and an entrepreneur developer, um, and you found this interesting enough to put some time into looking at, but you haven't sort of signed up to go and um, join in as part of the the mission of the Green Software Foundation. I mean, how how does it fit into, you know, how how do you hope it might help your work? How, How does it fit in? How is this changing your life? Should we ask it like that? (laughs) Well, a couple of years ago when I first developed my interest in this, there were very few people taking applied action. So there was was a lot of academic interest and there's there's a lot of papers um, and there are people researching this. But in terms of software developers and companies applying anything into real world development and providing metrics and data and methodologies that was very limited and that has changed now just the existence of the green software foundation and all the work that they're doing is great to see because it means it's escaped from academia and there are real world applications and hopefully that will mean that the improvements will be able to be applied to real world software because it's it's no use unless actual real software developers are implementing the different methods of deploying software, understanding how their applications can be more efficient and just starting to measure things because that is really the first step. Until you can measure something, you can't actually improve it. And until recently, it was very difficult to measure anything around this unless you owned all of the hardware and that is certainly less the case um, for more modern applications anyway. Mm. So software carbon intensity has like the potential to become some sort of a metric that gets used fairly widely in the industry. I think it has the potential, yes. I think there are some challenges, particularly around the thing I mentioned around the system boundary and being able to compare between scores. But the way that it's being developed on GitHub, it's open source, anyone can comment and discuss, is is a great way to develop this kind of thing. It's got some real people who are actually got a lot of experience um, in the different companies um, working on it, and it looks like it's going to be interesting. I think the question is how 
how it's going to be adopted and how software developers can actually build it into their applications. Because at the moment, it's still almost like a reporting activity where you run the test once or run a report once against your software and it gives you a score and that's it. And then everyone goes home. And then the question is, how do you start to use some of these metrics in real world applications? And by that, I mean things like moving workloads to regions where there's more clean energy available at a particular time or choosing how you're going to schedule jobs uh, based on the availability of, of clean energy. And really, it's not just clean energy. I think carbon, the carbon footprint is just one metric and it's the one that everybody focuses on. But there are other aspects of the environmental impact of computing, such as water consumption um, and certainly the embodied energy in the manufacturing, which is covered partly by um, the SCI uh, score, um, those things tend to have significantly less attention. Mm, absolutely. Yes, I mean, sometime in the future, I can sort of envisage um, sliders and a dashboard for the end user. And you and as you might choose um, a green energy provider for your house, you might sort of um, log into your social media and say, okay, I can have the free social media, which is um, uses this much resources, or I could start paying for it. And uh, I mean, maybe that's a hopelessly sort of um, utopian idea. And um, <laughs> the idea that anybody would pay to have a less um, environmentally damaging social media presence is maybe maybe that's a dream. I don't know. I think my goal with focusing on sustainable computing is to make it so that consumers don't have to think about this at all and they can just continue to use all the services that they like and they are automatically um, sustainable and have minimal or no impact on the environment. But I think where what you've described is likely to come in is in how the operators and the developers of the software think about their architecture. And that one is a good one because, for example, you could decide that you've got a job that runs every day, but it's not real time. It's not time sensitive. It could be run an hour later or an hour earlier. And you can actually run it in one region because clean energy is more abundant for that hour compared to another one. It's easy to say that there are lots of challenges around moving data around and having redundancy and reliability built into the system. But I think ultimately using these kind of indicators of the sustainability at a given time and in a given location is the key and servicing those indicators to software developers so they can do things like scheduling jobs um, or moving data around is where I think we'll see the real impact. Mm. So yeah, I mean, if you're um, programming the back of it, the back end of the, um, I don't know, the Sainsbury's online shop, you could actually say you 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 might have the opportunity to put it on a cloud provider that offered those kinds of facilities, and you could then tell your ultimate end customers that um, you know the Sainsbury's online shop uses, uh, you know, is optimized for reduced um, software carbon intensity or something like that. You could, you could see those things coming in. 
That's right. And understanding batch jobs versus real time. And to use a real example that Google's talked about is the encoding of YouTube videos happens based on carbon signals. Because when you upload a video, you want it to be available relatively soon, but it doesn't matter whether it's half an hour or an hour after you upload it. And they're able to move the processing and the encoding, which is a one-time job, to a region with more clean energy. And then they can use those indicators to move stuff around their data centers. Google has the advantage of owning a lot of data centers in a lot of regions, and so they can get that data. Um, It's a lot more challenging for people who don't own and build their own data centers to get the right data um, at the right time to impact where they're going to run their jobs. But I think that's an early indicator of what I hope we'll see more of. Mm. Right. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I think sort of um, data, data center dynamics readers and podcast list cast listeners are certainly at a level where I would hope many of them are going to be interested in getting more involved in this. It's good to know that the Soft Green Software Foundation is kind of responsive to people like you um, looking at their work and, uh, you know, and, and, and getting involved to any level that um, is uh, that's appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. It's just on their GitHub. You can open a pull request, suggest changes, post issues, and they've generally been very responsive. Mm, yeah, and they certainly, you know, at my level of involvement, they certainly produce um, good uh, newsletters that explain what they're aiming to do that makes it sort of, you know, in ways that make sense. Right. Okay, so, um, you know, ho- hopefully that'll be um, an Im- important thing in the future. Um, you know, I hope you're... Uh, you, can you you could imagine your future projects using this kind of thing? I think so. It, it's a question of how it is available in the languages and the frameworks that I'm using. So, for example, bringing in uh, the carbon intensity data into a Go application that I'm writing, being able to import. I am an SDK that can call an API to find out when a job should run. I can certainly see that happening um, or building it into the underlying Uh, software that you're using if you're using uh, Google's PubSub or you're running something like Apache Kafka for job processing, being able to move those around and building into those things. I think even just making it easy for developers to do that and build that into our application, we're not there yet. It's still very early um, and it's just coming to the point where we're starting to get access to this data in a granular Mm. enough level that you can start making these decisions. Yeah, so I mean, is there like a time scale that can you see? You know, when we might start to see the results of this. I would say that it will be longer than we hope, but sooner than we expect. Which tends right. to be how technology yes. develops. <laughs> yes, indeed, <laughs> and and usually less visible than you think it's going to be. You know, sort right. of. You know, in, in a couple of years' time, we'll think where is it, and in five years' time, we'll think where is it. Because it is, well, maybe five years is too soon for that because it's embedded in everything we're doing at some stage and we we still don't see it. It's just happening underneath things. Right. And probably the infrastructure providers will do a lot for us. If you're using um, AWS five years ago compared to today, you're now benefiting from all of their renewable energy purchases or the improvements in their data center efficiency. And you've not had to do anything as a customer. They've done all for you. And I think that Mm. should be the goal. Same as with 
software developers building consumer services, consumers should just be able to use something, video streaming, photo sharing, all those kind of things, and not have to worry about the environmental impact. And I think mm-hmm. software developers should hope for something similar. They may have to make a few more decisions and build a few more things into their code, but the underlying infrastructure should hopefully do a lot of the work for them, and they've just got to make a few decisions. Mm. And between them, those different infrastructures will at some point be maybe using this as a uh, a competitive differentiator. Our That's software right. has more green knobs, green controllability built into it. Yep, absolutely. And hopefully we'll see decisions having that as a factor. I think some organizations think about it now by suspect the sustainability of infrastructure is low on the level of priority. But I think we will see that increase over time so that it just becomes another factor in in the procurement process alongside price and functionality, security, certifications, compliance, those kind of things. And then sustainability will be another one of those things on the checklist. Brilliant. Well, thank you, David, for kind of what's almost an unexpectedly hopeful conversation. (laughs) I certainly look forward to hearing more about this as it happens and then getting to the point where we don't have to. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Sustainability is no longer a nice to have. It's a priority. Vertiv Power, cooling and IT management solutions for critical infrastructure are designed to reduce the use of energy, water, and space. From innovative liquid cooling to dynamic grid services, we work hand-in-hand with customers to enable them to meet their data center sustainability goals. Visit us at vertiv.com and see what we can do for you. Thanks for listening to the Zero Downtime Podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical digital infrastructure provider. Don't forget to like this podcast and subscribe to our channel. We'll see you again next time.